good morning. I see that some of you slept in, got that extra cup of coffee, maybe starting to come to a little bit. It was only one hour, folks. And some of y'all act like it was a whole night. I, I don't know. I don't know what that, that says about you. I'm just saying. It's one hour. You'll, you'll make up for it over the next six days. Some of you this coming Friday will be complaining about the one hour you lost last night. So my week just has not been right. I, again, I don't know what that says about you, but you could probably use some doctoral help. Last week, we looked at Jesus clearing the temple he, had not, he inaugurated the new covenant by showing his authority over the temple of God. And in that, he foreshadowed his ability to be the once for all sacrifice that would open the presence of God to all that believe. You know, the reality is that Jesus brings the presence of God to everyone that puts their faith and trust in him by taking the penalty of sin onto himself. And the only sacrifice that can offer eternal redemption from sin is the sacrifice that Jesus gives of his own life. In verse 18, he transitions in the book of Matthew, at least, to give us declarations and implications of what that eternal redemption will bring out of the life that you live in following Jesus. And I think that this section from verse 18 to verse 22 needs its own week kind of to address an important teaching that Jesus gives us, but also uh, to clear up what oftentimes is some out-of-context understanding of what Jesus says here, some misunderstandings of the implications of what Jesus says here, because it is often taken out of context. It is often misunderstood. Some of us pass over completely what this picture of him cursing the fig tree means, and we just move on to what he says about mountain-moving faith, all the while taking that completely out of context. But I also want you to understand that this section is chronologically connected to the narrative of Jesus clearing the temple, as it takes place on the same day as a sign that is connected to what he does in the temple. And so the cursing of the fig tree is something that takes place um, kind of on both sides of him clearing the temple. He curses the fig tree on this side, enters into the temple, clears it, and on the other side of clearing the temple is the explanation to the disciples of what happens after the fig tree withers. And so what Jesus teaches in this section completely, to give you kind of the end before we go through it, is that there is a fruitfulness that will always flow from a life of real faith. There's a lot of false teaching in this world that will give us the idea that we can be a follower of Jesus, but not obey the commands that he lays out in our lives. That we can both be a Christian, which is defined by follower of Jesus, and somehow never actually follow him in real time in our lives. That is unbiblical. And what I hope to show you is that not only is it unbiblical, but it doesn't make any sense. It's self-defeating and contradictory to put forward any type of notion that you can be a Christian and not act like a Christian at the same time. If you're going to follow Jesus, God demands that you actually follow Jesus. It, it even makes sense when you think about it. If you're going to follow him, well, you better get up and go. You got to follow him. And this is a lesson 
from the life of the nation of Israel. And that's ultimately what the cursing of the fig tree is all about. So I want to go ahead and look in starting in verse 18 of Matthew 21. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so from the response of Jesus to the miracle of Jesus, you see right there that this is a lesson of faith that Jesus is hoping that his disciples learn. And in explanation of that, we start by understanding, number one this morning, God demands fruit from his people. God demands fruit from his people. To understand why Jesus curses the fig tree, you have to understand the role of a prophet in the nation of Israel. And to understand what he's done in the fig tree, you have to understand a lot about the Old Testament, but you also have to understand that this is a peculiar miracle of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, all miracles are peculiar. That's why they're miracles. They're not normal. But even in light of all of the miracles that Jesus did while he was on this earth, this is peculiar among those miracles. Because the other miracles of Jesus, kind of immediately you understand what is going on. They're either there to prove that he is God the Son, or they are there to show him reversing the curse of sin in people's lives. The blind are made to see, the lame are made to walk, the deaf are made to hear, the lepers are cleansed of their leprosy. But here we have a miracle that is strange. Jesus isn't calming the sea to show his power over nature. He's going and he's looking at one tree and saying, no longer will you produce any fruit. But what Jesus does here is unique in that just as his actions inside of the temple are to show that he is the better high priest compared to Annas, the connection of this cursing of the fig tree is to show that he is the better prophet. Jesus, if you look through the narratives of the gospels, is shown as the prophet of Israel. He's shown as the priest of Israel. He's shown as the king of Israel. Unlike anyone else, he is in all three offices at exactly the same time for all of eternity. But in this light, you have to understand that when you look at the lives of the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus is very clearly acting as a prophet. If you look at the lives of people like the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Hosea, you see people, if we just use them as an example, who were called by God to perform very strange things to show God's judgment on the nation of Israel. Isaiah was told by God he had to walk around butt naked for a while so that the nation of Israel would see God's judgment on them being laid bare. Ezekiel was told by God to cook food over cow dung in order to show God's judgment and the stench of Israel to the nose of God which is fascinating because Ezekiel's response was, ew, cow dung, that's dirty. And God says, fine, use your own. And he does. So then we see in the life of Jeremiah, imprisonment 
to completely show the imprisonment of Israel. In the life of Hosea, he says, go marry the prostitute Homer. So you will see that Israel as a nation has made themselves prostitutes. And I am the faithful husband to this prostitute. And so some of them aren't even safe for TV. And so God looks to prophets and he says, you are going to do very peculiar things to show the nation of Israel my judgment on them. And Jesus accompanies that office right here where he looks at a fig tree. Now, if you don't know this, fig trees represented the fruitfulness of the promised land that was given to the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God uses the fig tree as an example of the fruitfulness of the land. He says, I'm sending you into a land that is so prosperous. There are fig trees everywhere and you can eat of the fruit that they produce for the rest of your lives. And so the nation of Israel would have understood that anything that is being used as a fig tree, as an example, is to show something going on in the nation of Israel. But it's even more connected to clearing the temple than you might be thinking about. Matthew is not intended to be a book from Matthew to show us always a chronological ordering. Rather, it is a book that is written to the nation of Israel using Hebrew references so that they will understand what God is doing in reference to Israel. But Mark, from the lens of the apostle Peter, is to show us more of a chronological activity. That's why it moves so fast. If you see one thing throughout the book of Mark, it says, and then, and then, and then, and then. It's a very fast-moving book showing you chronology more than anything else. And in Mark chapter 11, Mark records what took place in this passage in Matthew 21. It says, on the following day, when they came to Bethany, this verse 12 of Mark 11, he became hungry. Jesus became hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and a leaf, which means in season to produce fruit, because it had leaves, He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, that's important because what this text is saying, that Jesus sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. That's important. If you understand anything about fig trees, which I don't and neither do any of you, (laughs) but I looked it up. When fig trees produce leaves they at the same time always produce fruit. They never produce one without the other. And so what we have here is a very unique situation where Jesus comes upon a tree, a fig tree rather, that has leaves but no fruit. It's as if a sovereign God made it do that for a purpose. Verse 14, and Jesus said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. And they came to Jerusalem, and then he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Then if you skip down to Mark eleven twenty, it says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And so you see that what Mark tells us is that the chronology or the timeline that things took place is that the cursing of the fig tree takes place as bookends for what Jesus does in the temple. And so this cursing of the fig tree is being used by Jesus 
to make a pronouncement about the faith of the nation of Israel. He's making the pronouncement, you are outwardly religious, but you are spiritually dead on the inside. You claim to have faith in God, but your faith is not producing the fruit that I demand of you to produce. Even in the reality of what the disciples ask of him, Jesus looks and he says, it has leaves, but it has no fruit to say. The fig tree is not acting as it should be acting. So also is Israel not acting as they should be acting. And I'm headed into the temple to prove it. And so what does he see when he enters the temple? The signs of spiritual death, the signs of faithlessness, the signs of a people who are not properly worshiping the God that brought them into the promised land. And so what does Jesus pronounce on them? He pronounces a judgment. And so this fig tree stands as a prophetic representation of the faithlessness of the nation of Israel. This peculiar miracle done by God is to show us that the promises of God, when they are trusted, will always produce fruitfulness in the life of the one who has faith. Like I said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, fig trees represent the fruitfulness that God is providing for the nation of Israel. But Jesus in this capacity is noting that those who have received the promises of God will be fruitful. But in Mark chapter 11, verse 20, you see something very interesting as well, that it points out that the tree had withered to the root. In the original language, what this means is that it had withered from the roots up. And that means that Jesus had cut the tree off from its very source of life. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you look at a tree, the tree is not receiving sustenance from that which is above ground. It's receiving all of its sustenance from the root system of the tree, which is buried underneath the ground. And so all of the source of life is coming up from the soil into the tree, and it's feeding itself so that it will continue to live. But what the text is telling us, and it's pointing us to the roots to say, this is not just something that happened from the top down. This is something that happened because the tree was cut off at its very root. And that is to represent being cut off from the source of life, which is God. The nation of Israel had become a completely fruitless nation. Even though they were in the land of promise by God, the faith that they claimed to have wasn't producing that which God dictated that it produce. And that is a contradiction. If you have faith in God you will not live a fruitless life. Even if you are outwardly religious, you can still be spiritually dead. You can pretend on the outside to have life, but on the inside be very dead. And this analogy is directly connected to that false worship that was taking place inside of the temple. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus even uses this analogy as a parable. Look in verse 6 of Luke 13. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Verse 8. And the vine dresser answered him, Sir, 
Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Verse 9, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you cut it down. This parable is about the patience of God in giving time for repentance and faith. But ultimately, it's about the path of judgment that comes from God if fruitlessness continues revealing no spiritual life. Friend, how long do you think God will endure your fruitfulness, your fruitlessness? How long do you think God will endure your refusal to repent of your sin? How long are you going to use the patient understanding and grace of God as an excuse to continue in your sin that you continually say, I'll get it right later. I'll turn from my sin tomorrow. Not today, but maybe later I will turn from my sin. This analogy is to show you God is patient, but it is also to show you there is coming a day where everyone will stand before God. And in that day, there won't be tomorrow. There won't be multiple chances for you to turn from your sin, but rather there's coming a point where God will always deal with every sin. And because of that, you have to understand, number two this morning, a fruitless life is a faithless life. A fruitless life is a faithless life. Faith always produces evidence. Always. In Mark eleven twenty two, you see an important proclamation from Jesus. And I love the way the disciples talk to Jesus. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him make the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. They've seen lepers be completely, have their skin cleansed in a moment. And they're amazed by a fig tree being withered. And they're like, Jesus, unparalleled power. How did you do that? All right. They always miss it. All right. And I love the patient understanding of Christ, especially where the disciples are concerned. But Jesus looks at them. And I want to deal with part of his answer. In Mark eleven twenty two. 22, Mark records that Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And I don't want to deal with the second half yet. I want to deal with that statement right there. So that lets us know that the issue that Jesus is dealing with where this example of the cursing of the fig tree is concerned is what it looks like and what is demanded by God where faith in Jesus is concerned. Why does Jesus say this? He's using a real-time event as an analogy to show the necessity of what real faith will look like in opposition to counterfeit faith. There are many, and I hear them all the time, that give a false version of the gospel that proclaims that if you simply agree with the facts of the gospel of Jesus, but then there's no life change on the other side of agreeing with that facts, that you still have salvation. That you can somehow live in this in-between state where you say, yes, I agree. He's the son of God. Yes, I agree. Died on the cross. Yes, I agree. He rose from the dead. I'll even agree. He's coming again. I agree with those things. And then you walk away from that assent, that agreement with an unchanged life. There are many that will tell you that if you live like that, you still possess the salvation that Jesus has to offer. And I need you to understand two things. First, that is a completely unbiblical idea. You will never see that concept laid out in Scripture. But then secondly, 
it doesn't even make sense to think that. It's a complete contradiction in terms. In logic, that's called breaking the law of non-contradiction, which you can't do. Something can't be and not be at the same time. And so in this instance, the claim is you can be a follower of Jesus and not follow Jesus at the same time. It's a contradiction. You can't do that. If you aren't following Jesus, then you aren't what? A follower of Jesus. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe a host of things. But there's one thing you aren't doing. You aren't following Jesus. You cannot define the term Christian apart from being a follower of Jesus. Yet so many in our culture, and even so many in the modern church, claim to be Christians while not following Jesus in any sense of the term. That is impossible. What was the evidence then of Israel's faithlessness? Because that is the accusation that Jesus is making. Jesus gives one piece of evidence. They were not producing the fruit that God wanted them to produce. That was it. And that's all it takes. If your life is not producing what God tells you He wants you to produce, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. It is that simple where Scripture is concerned. The only people that complicate it are the people that want to live in contradiction of terms. This fruitfulness analogy is one that is pervasive throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, from his teachings as well as his miracles. Look in Matthew chapter 7. This is an example from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives us what I believe is the simplest analogy for knowing whether or not you are a Christian. In verse 18 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Recognize who? Christians. Followers of Jesus. But who else will you recognize by their fruits? Non-Christians. People that aren't following Jesus. If you have healthy faith, what are you going to produce? Healthy fruit. Seems simple enough to me. Why would you complicate that? Well, if you don't want to admit you're not a Christian, you'd complicate it, wouldn't you? Bad diseased trees, what kind of fruit can you expect? Bad diseased fruit. It's simple, but it is something that so many people struggle with. Here's the reality. You can diagnose whether or not someone is a Christian by the fruit that is being produced in his or her life. You can do it every single time, to which some people will retort, who are you to judge? To which I say, no one. Jesus is doing the judging right here. And he's telling me, Steve, use common sense. If someone's living a biblical life, they tend to be followers of Jesus. If someone isn't, then they're not. Let's go further. John 15, starting in verse 5. This is the conclusion of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be connected to him in relationship. Verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much, what? Fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, there's something that we don't like to talk about that these stories, uh, or these narratives rather, have a connection with, and that's the fire part. And that's an analogy for the judgment of God. Jesus is saying, 
Just like in that parable of the fig tree where it says, if it doesn't bear fruit this year, we're going to cut it down. Jesus is saying, what do you do once you cut those trees that aren't bearing fruit down? You burn them because they're good for nothing. They fall under the judgment of God. So if you are living a life, the warning from Jesus is, that does not bear the fruit that God commands you to bear, you are headed towards eternal condemnation. Jesus is being very clear. Jesus did not come to the earth to confuse us. He came to the earth to clear some things up. Now, if your life then, I want to be clear, is not producing the fruit of Jesus, then you aren't following him. I want to be that simple with you. It really is. Now, you should, I believe, frequently take inventory of the fruit that your life is producing in order to diagnose the health of the tree of your faith. Ask yourself some simple questions. What is happening to your desires? Are you desiring more faithfulness to Jesus? Are you desiring less faithfulness to Jesus according to the scriptures? You have to ask yourself, what am I compelled to invest my life in? When I am anxious, where do I turn for relief? What has my affection? Do I feel conviction for my sin? Or do I just sin and not feel anything? Do I care about what God cares about? Friends, the list goes on and on, but it is always healthy to ask yourselves questions like that and then diagnose the answers according to Scripture and say, does my life align with what God says a healthy, fruitful Christian life is supposed to look like? There is a necessity in many people's lives to stop giving yourself therapy to feel better about your lack of gospel fruit. But it doesn't end there. You also need to stop trying to make the people around you feel better about the sin that they show no conviction in their lives and no repentance for whatsoever. Stop looking at someone that is living an unrepentant sin and say, well, deep down, you're a good person. No, they're not. What does Jesus say? If they have bad fruit, what are they deep down? Diseased. You are deeply diseased because of sin. You need to turn from your sin and trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to interpret these texts. You cannot get anything else out of it because Jesus is so abundantly clear. Friends, you cannot separate the term Christian from the definition, a follower of Jesus. And so, yes, Jesus in Matthew 21 is looking to Israel and making the judgment that if there is no fruit, then they do not have the life of God in their lives. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is concluding the parable of the sower, pointing to the harsh reality that there are people that will falsely claim to be Christians. And at the end of that parable in verse 8, Jesus says, do you want to know who has real faith? Verse 8, there were seeds that fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. So what does Jesus say? 
again. If you have faith, you will produce the fruit of faith. If you are following Jesus, there will be signs of life. If you do not have signs of life, what do you have? Death. I don't know if you know this or not. You probably do. But you often don't connect it to following Jesus. I've been to a lot of funerals, more than I wish I had. And I've taken part in the uncomfortable uh, thing where people leave the casket open. I don't want that look, but I take it. You know, I remember the young, when my grandfather died, I, that was the first time I'd ever seen a dead body. And it's not a laughing matter. It scarred me for life. Thanks, parents. Thanks, Mom. Appreciate that. Uh, but you walk in there, and this is one thing all dead bodies have in common. Do you know what it is? They don't get up. They don't breathe. They don't have a heartbeat. They don't have any signs of what? Life. But they do have signs of what? Death. Every sign of death. When it comes to your life of following Jesus, you have to understand there will be life. There will not be signs of death. There will always be signs of life. There will be a pulse to your faith. There will be breath to your faith. There will be action in your life where God is concerned. But when Jesus came into this world, into Israel, and he looks into the temple, what does he find? He only found signs of spiritual death. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have to understand that there is coming a day where God will hold you accountable for either the signs of life or the signs of death. So my question for you this morning is, what do you have more signs of in your life? Are there signs of life? Where your relationship with Jesus Christ is concerned, do you have a pulse? Do you love him? Do you want him? Do you cherish him? When it comes to the sin that is present in your life, is there a struggle against it or is there just you constantly, unrepentantly giving in to sin over and over and over? Friends, is there a pulse to your faith? Are you following Jesus Christ or are you just giving yourself therapy to feel better about your spiritual death? If you go to a hospital, once death has come, they stop all therapy. Once it's been called, it's been called. You don't administer an IV to a dead body. You don't give a dead body medicine. You prepare for burial. Here's my question for you. Why are you giving therapy to spiritual death? Why are you trying to pump up the self-esteem of spiritual death? Why are you trying to feel better about death when you could have life? when you could have the vivifying effects of the life 
of Christ in your body. If you will turn from the sin that is so pervasive in bringing disease and death in your body, if you turn from that sin and embrace the life of Christ, he will instantly vivify dead flesh, the scripture tells us, and give you every sign of life that you can have. And Jesus gives us clear instruction. If you want to know if someone is experiencing life in faith, there will always be signs. And the scripture gives us every sign that you could possibly have. But number three this morning, in that life of faith, real faith expects to live by God's power. Are you living by God's power? On the other side of Jesus in Mark 11 saying, it's about faith. He says this, starting in verse 20 of Matthew 21. Disciples saw it. Hey, how'd you do that, Jesus? Verse 21, Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, a lot of people do a lot of damage to this text. No one in the history of the world has ever moved a mountain into the sea. Let, you know, as a Christian, sometimes we have to admit these things. All right? But here's the deal. Jesus didn't do it either. Jesus never looked at a mountain and said, he wasn't a Jedi. He didn't do worthless tricks. All right? Not only that, but when the Apostle Paul stood before King Festus, wouldn't have been amazing if Festus is saying, tell me the gospel, and Paul says, well, I'll do you one better. Check that mountain out. Yeah! And he uproots a mountain. Festus would have been like, not only do I believe in Jesus, but I'll give you all my money. I'm terrified of you. Okay? So you got to understand that Jesus used literary devices in the New Testament. If he didn't, we would all have to pluck our eyes out and cut our hands off. All right? Because he also said that. But Jesus embraces literary devices, especially in the book of Matthew, because Matthew was written to a chiefly Jewish audience, and so Jesus used Jewish slang. Where rabbis and spiritual leaders were concerned in the first century, they would be often referred to as the rooter up of mountains, if they could give advice and wisdom that aided someone in overcoming what seemed to be insurmountable obstacles in their life, people would revere that person and say, you are the rooter up of mountains. You are an amazing teacher. And what Jesus is saying in this text is if you will live by the power of God in your life, you are going to come up against obstacles. You are going to come up against barriers. You will come up against pain in your life. You will come up against enemies in this life. You will come up against temptation to sin in your life. But if you have even a little life-giving faith in Jesus, you will be able to overcome them. You will. Because what do we have throughout the entire narrative of Scripture? We have God having His people 
And he always tells people, even with specifics, he will say, go from here, move over there. And without exception, every time God calls someone to go from point A to point B, in between A and B, what do they do? They encounter obstacles. They encounter barriers. They encounter suffering. They encounter enemies. They encounter temptation to sin. Every single time. To those who endure in faith, what does God do when they encounter those things? He shows his power in their lives to overcome obstacles, barriers, suffering, enemies, temptation to sin. But if they are faithless, what happens? They do not experience the power of God and they fall victim to obstacles, barriers, pain, temptation to sin, and enemies. Every single time, that's how the narrative of Scripture works. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has called you to go from the point where He breathes life into dead lungs to give you the pulse of faith. And He says, you move forward in your life to live the mission that God has called you in this world into the kingdom of God that He has promised He will deliver into your life and into your world. And without a doubt, here's what's going to happen. You're going to encounter obstacles. You're going to encounter barriers. You're going to encounter enemies. You're going to encounter pain. And you're going to encounter temptation to sin. Those are the mountains that Jesus wants to root up in your life. And Jesus is telling you, if you have faith, expect to live and depend on God's power in those moments. Because friend, if you have nothing but a lifeless, worthless, dead faith, you will be destroyed by every one of those things. You will. But God says, if you want to experience victory, mountain-moving faith is about living for the mission that God has called you to live for in your life. I will tell you, he's looking at his followers and letting you know that if you want unimaginable power, it's available for you but you must trust him for it. You must trust him to define it. You must trust him to give it. Friends, to sincerely trust in Jesus is to believe that his power and his power alone can produce what he has promised. Like I said, friends, Jesus never literally moved a mountain. And by that, you got to understand that whenever he gives you a, a prescription, he will typically give you a description of how that works out in life. And so don't go and try to move Mount Everest, right? It's not going to happen. But God will show himself powerful for the purposes that he has told you he wants you to live for. That is what you need to dedicate your life to. God always rewards those who want to live for his purpose under his power. Therefore, if you follow Jesus... Expect those resistances to come into your life. There's going to be spiritual warfare. There's going to be cultural warfare. There's going to be obstacles in this life. There's going to be pain. But God promises through Jesus Christ that all of his purposes and plans for his mission in my life will be accomplished. And so when I face obstacles, here's the deal. 
I'm not surprised. When I face temptation, I'm not surprised. When I face enemies, I'm not surprised. When I face pain, I wish I wasn't surprised. But I always am. I'll be honest about that. Friends, you're going to face them. But some of you are always shocked by them because you are trying to live a life without God's power for your purposes. It doesn't work that way. Friends, every step of following Jesus in my life has proved the truth that His purposes necessitate His power. By His grace, faith realigns my life with God's purposes. He makes an interesting statement about prayer as he finishes. And I'll I'll be honest with you, I, I love prayer. God listens to me and God responds to me. What an amazing adventure that is. But I also encounter a lot of people who are disappointed in their prayer because they say, I've prayed and nothing's happened. I will tell you the scripture warns us about that. I always point people to James chapter 4 when they say, I've prayed and nothing's happening. James 4 verse 3, the half-brother of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit tells us, you ask and you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. Because you want to spend it on your passions. Do you know what your passions are? Your passions are the opposite of God's purposes. Your passions mean you're trying to get God on your page. God has no interest in getting you on, excuse me, on getting on your page. God wants you to get on his page. The life of faith is always about aligning my purposes with his purposes. Therefore, I have to understand that when God makes a promise to work in prayer, it aligns with every other promise he's made about his purposes. Look in John 14. Jesus says this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father, what? may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What are the caveats there? My name. If you look at that phrase, my name, it is the same pronouncement that a king uses when he says, if you do this, tell them you're doing it as my representative. When you tell someone that you are representing someone else, what are you also doing? You're saying this is their purpose. I'm representing them. If you pray, you have to understand that it's not a promise that whatever you want to happen is what God is bound to do. No, it's whatever He wants to happen in my life that is going to happen. Whatever He says is going to bring God the Father glory is what is going to happen in my life. And my prayers need to be aligned with His purposes or my prayers are going to end up inflicting more pain in my life. I am so thankful for many of the prayers that I have offered to God where God had the wisdom and power to look at me and say, no, no. There are so many things I look back on the decades of my life that if God had given that into my life, I'd be a monster now. If God had allowed that to happen in my life, it would have ruined my life. If God had allowed that thing that I was desperate for to come into my life, it would have been ruined for me because it would have taken me away from his purposes and given me a path that was all about my glory, my mission, and my power. God is gracious when he will not give into your life the very thing that would kill your faith. So even when it's not pleasant, it's always good. That's an important clarification. 
God's name always aligns with his purposes. But I'll be honest, that is a wonderful thing about Christianity. Jesus' followers love to live in alignment with his purposes. Why? Because good trees bear good fruit. A few application points this morning. The first one, a life that depends, excuse me, live a life that depends on God's purposes. Live a life that depends on God's promises. I'll get it right one of these days. I wrote this, I promise. <laughs> Live a life that depends on God's promises. If you are aligning your life with anything else, the end is destruction. It's destruction. Depend on His promises. Secondly, pursue gospel fruit in your life. It's not magic. God works the ends and the means that get to those ends. You have to pursue obedience. You have to pursue discipleship. Pursue those things. Thirdly, God condemns fruitless faith. Take self-inventory. Look at the life you're really living. Look at the fruit that your life is really producing and ask yourself, is this the fruit that Jesus wants to be produced in my life? Fourthly, align your life with the mission of Jesus. Align your life with the mission of Jesus. That's the purpose of God for you. Fifthly, pray believing that God's power will accompany God's purpose. Pray believing that God's power will accompany His purpose. His purposes will come to pass. Therefore, when you meet resistance, expect His power. Believe His power. Ask for His power. Trust His power. And keep following Jesus. 